Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and I'm really excited to, to bring you my guest today. Um, as this show has kind of grown over the past couple of years, I've gotten more and more requests from listeners about different people that I should have on the show. But in this case, the request came from other cooks and chefs who just want to hear more from, from this individual. They want to hear more about his story, and that is John Angler. He is currently at Avalie. John, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you're currently at, uh, and we're going to go through your career and kind of look at the different stops and everything, but you're at Avalie right now. What drew you to that restaurant specifically, one that kind of specializes in pasta and northern Italian cooking? Well, Avalie was like one of my honestly favorite restaurants, you know, as I was, you know, working at the Plume. And then when they opened, I think in 2013, you know, I'd already known what Dario was doing at the Brasserie and then came in to eat, have had excellent meals there every time and you know just where it's at and there i mean there's a lot that goes into just dario's reputation when you have a restaurateur who is that respected you know yeah. to get a chance to learn from and, and work from him i'm assuming that was a big pull as well oh yeah yeah for sure so um i i just i have an unhealthy obsession with pasta <laughs> I, I just absolutely love pasta but i also know that it's like it's a very specific craft like it's you know a lot of people associate cooking pasta with just you know tossing some tossing some dry pasta in boiling water but at a restaurant like Avalie it's much much different how do you what was the process of perfecting that craft at Avalie like for you uh I wouldn't say I say I'm still in that process you know right now like every day you learn something new new pasta shapes you know I thought I knew something about you know pasta until I got there and was like, no, nah, <laughs> no. So I'm learning every day, you know, and that's kind of the cool part is like, I never thought I'd be rolling pasta at my favorite restaurant, uh-huh. you know, like five, six years ago. You know, I would never thought that. So what was that revelation moment like for you? Like you, you just said you, you thought you knew about you cooking pasta, but now you realize you're, you know, Avalie's at a whole different level. What yeah. was that moment of realization like? Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it was when I, First got to use the pasta extruder, you know, having that available is like so many shapes and things you can do with that. You know, just learning that process was pretty fun. At at what point did you start feeling comfortable? Like, I believe, you know, I can take Dario's vision on some of these courses or some of these dishes and start executing them at the level, you know, that he's comfortable with. I'm still like kind of letting him take the lead on some of that stuff because I'm not coming into a... you know, try and reinvent the wheel there. Right, you right. Know, so, yeah. um, I'm still taking a lot of direction from him and how he wants his menu to read and things like that, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what do you think... So, Avali, it, it's defined as, like, northern Italian cuisine, but with a modern twist. What does that mean to you, and how do you think that description separates it from other Italian restaurants in Omaha? I think... You know, some other Italian restaurants in Omaha are just like, you know, red sauce, cream sauce, you know, stuff like that. I mean, not the higher end ones, but uh, I think it gives you a little freedom with flavors a little bit, uh, some plate ups, things like that. You know, I think that's kind of what sets it aside. You still do your really traditional, uh, you know, uh, bolognese and gnocchi, which it's it's so simple, but there's nothing to hide. It has to be done correctly, uh-huh. you know, but then you have some room on other things where you can... You know, do a vegetable a couple different ways, different textures, things like that, you know. 
So I want to get into your background a little bit personally. How would you describe your style of cooking? Uh, that's tough, you know. I'm maybe still trying to figure that out too, you know, because in cooking you're never going to stop learning. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to learn something from anybody that works there. It could be a comey, a dishwasher, you know, all the way up to your you know front of house managers, things like that, how to verbalize things at the menu, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe my style would be more, uh, yeah, it's just hard to say, you know, just well done things, I guess. Well, it's, it's interesting because, and like I said, we're going to go through your career kind of step by step, but just looking at your resume, you know, you've got Gray Plume, V. Mertz, Bella Rose. I mean, these are like some really high-end restaurants that you've cooked at. You know, this yeah. isn't uh, you know, just like a, a chain or something like that. And you're still constantly learning and you're still evolving. I think that that's such an important part of the, of the cooking process is just, you know, trying to find new things. And like yeah. so, some of these restaurants offer pasta dishes, but you know, you wanted to go specifically to this pasta restaurant and you've said you've learned all these new things that yeah. you didn't even know previously. You know, like at, at Grey Plume, we'd have, you know, maybe one or two pastas on the menu. And that was it. You know, you'd have fish, beef, a pasta, vegetarian set, you know, type of thing for entrees. Uh, same thing at Baylor Rose. You know, we had one or two different stuffed pastas, but that was about it, you know. But here when you have a whole pasta section, you know, it's, it's pretty fun. It's uh-huh. fun. Uh, how did you get into cooking originally? Uh, well, I'm from Chamberlain, South Dakota, so there's not much to do up there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the food scene isn't hopping up there at all. It's uh you know, fast food, and, you know, I think we had, like, one one or two diners in town, and that, that's about it, you know. It's right on the interstate, so it's a lot of tourist traffic, and, you know, during the summer, it's fishermen, fall, it's hunting, and all that stuff. Uh, but if you didn't, you know, in Chamberlain, if you didn't, like, work on a farm or a ranch or whatever, and, you know, city kids, you're working in town either at your parents' business or, you know, me and my friends, we all got jobs in fast food as soon as we could work. You know, when I was 14, I... I was working at an A&W, and I was working at a McDonald's at the same time, you know, just trying to buy a car, though. You know, that was the main goal. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I felt it young, uh, just that adrenaline rush of dinner service, getting overwhelmed, getting things out, you know, keeping things organized, stuff like that. You know, a lot of people say working in fast food doesn't count, you know, but I disagree with that. I think it totally counts. I mean, you're, you're still doing inventory, prepping stations, stocking stations, you know, you know, keeping sanitary standards, you know, even when I was 14, 15, I didn't really think about that. But when you look back, it's like, yeah, I was doing kind of some of that stuff, like right from the beginning. So tell me more about like the rush of dinner service. What, what about that? You know, whether it's fast food, whether it's, you know, doing more of a fine dining, like you are now, like, what is it about that, that thrill that just, and some people have it and some people don't like, what is that like for you? I mean, it's, it's, you know, the work you've done all day to get to that point, you know, when you're only open from five to 10, you know, you got five hours to, you know, execute all that prep work you did, you know, properly, you know, and that's a challenge, but that's also the fun part, you know, because if it wasn't challenging, it'd, it'd be boring, you know, uh-huh. so when you can live off, you know, that kind of adrenaline rush, you know, and then it's like, shit, I get to do that tomorrow. I got to do it again tomorrow. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, when you cook that perfect, you know, medium rare steak or 
perfectly rested chicken, you know, things like that. Like, that's the thing when you're executing that 15 times a night, you know, per dish or, you know, whatever. Right. That's, that's the fun part, you know. Okay, so you're working at A&W, you're working at McDonald's. Did you get the car? Eventually? I did get the car. Yes. Good, yes. good. That's yeah. po- that's a positive thing to <laughs> note. Wh- where did you go next? Like, when did you realize that food could maybe not just be, you know, a part-time job or the means to a car or something, but yeah. it, it could be a lifestyle for you? Well, yeah, at that point, there was a resort on the other side of the river in Chamberlain over in the other county. And one of my friend's dads was the food and beverage director there. So I got a line cooking job over there. So it's not just fast food. At that point, we're doing, you know, steaks, different appetizers, fish, you know. So at that point, I was being exposed to more stuff that I had never done before either, you know. So it just kept growing and growing. And by the time I was graduating high school and going to college, you know, I wanted to go straight to culinary school. My parents were like, you know, maybe you try college first, you know. And I'm glad they did. You know, I met a lot of people and. Uh, you know, it made it easier to get into culinary school because I already had these other credits and all I had to focus on was food when I did go to culinary school. I had like one or two credits to pick up, but everything else was just cooking classes. That was it. So that helped a lot, you know, being able to just focus on just food when you're really being introduced to it for the first time as Mm -hmm. well. You know, you don't have to worry about math 101 and science and this stuff. I already took those classes, you know. What culinary school did you go to? Uh, I went to uh, South Central Technical College in uh, Mankato, Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. There's a, a girl, a friend of my sister's, my older sister in town. She went to culinary school there like three or four years before me. And she she focused on pastry or whatever, but uh, she couldn't stop talking about how good the instructor was and the program was. So and it fit in my price range too. Uh-huh. Know, not too far from home, but still far enough, you know. But uh yeah, and she spoke well of the instructor, so I went up there, toured the school, and got signed up, and it was great. I know this is going to seem like a very broad question, but I've never been to culinary school. I'm willing to bet that a good percentage of the people listening to this right now have not been to culinary school. So just super open-ended. You can take this in whatever <laughs> direction you want to, but like, what is culinary school like? I mean, <clears throat> when I was first there, and you look around, you know, maybe the demographic of the school that I was at was a little different, but... You know, there's, like, two kids my age. There's, like, 17 kids in the whole class. Uh-huh. Three of us graduated, you know. But, uh, yeah, there's, like, a couple kids my age, and then there's some, you know, some adults that were career changers and things like that, and, you know, they're trying to open either their own business or get, you know, uh, you know, the business end of that, too, down and things like that. But, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a good thing to show that you're committed, you know, if you go to a another restaurant trying to get a job and, you know, you do have a degree, at least shows that you stuck it out and finished the process, you know, and then that can translate well into the kitchen too. when you see that, but not saying people that didn't go to culinary school, you know, aren't hard workers or finish things, you know, it's, you can learn just as much on the job as you do at school. Absolutely. If you have the right teacher or the right, you know, chef. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think was the most important thing that you took away from culinary school? From culinary school? Uh, it's probably, you know, just that, just the knowledge too, you know, because I had worked in restaurants previously, but then when they put you in a setting where you're feeding a cafeteria of a hundred people for lunch and breakfast, you know, that whole other setting, that was huge to me because I was like, you know, working at these smaller restaurants doing, you know, 70, 80 covers, you know, but they're just getting sandwiches. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's like turn and burn, but then like you see that larger 
catering aspect or whatever because there's so many different avenues and food, you know, small food processes. Um, like, you know, just a small mom-and-pop diner operates different than, like, the Grey Plume or Baylor Rose or sure. any of that. And then, like, into the hotel when I was at Society 1854 when we were doing – Crazy amounts of covers, like on game nights and things like that. It was, it was insane there for a little <laughs> bit, but that all slowed down with the pandemic and all that. But uh, no, I think culinary school opened my eyes to all the different avenues of food, the food industry. You know, because I had only seen like small cafes or a little fast food thing. But then when you started getting in fine dining, different ingredients, ethnicity, like different ethnicities of food, like things like that. Like in Chamberlain, I wasn't exposed to any of that. French cooking, no. You know, it was just whatever my mom was cooking. Right. You know, um, you know, Italian food, you know, for example, or even just, you know, anything like that. You know, just finding all these new ingredients you didn't even know, you know, that it existed was kind of awesome. And to know that that world was still out there too, anywhere you go, you're always going to find something new with food. Uh-huh. So I'm assuming, you know, for you, you kind of just mentioned that your exposure to food was somewhat limited growing up in terms of, you know, what you could work with, what you could experience, things like that. But you still had that drive and that desire to to be in the industry. I can only imagine going to culinary school and all of a sudden you're learning about these different styles of cooking and yeah. you're tasting things that you've never tasted before. I mean, that just had to be like a playground, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like when I had to side my first salmon, you know, in Chamberlain, we weren't getting fresh salmon, <laughs> you know, like we'd get walleye out of the river, fresh walleye. That was something you don't really get all, you know, that fresh, that good. But yeah, I mean, yeah, when you fillet your first salmon or you taste a couscous salad for the first time when you've just had like, you know, pasta salad at home drenched in mayo or potatoes, you know what I mean? Like those types of things. It's right. like, and then to realize there's different types of couscous and you're just like, incident you know that's <laughs> what's great about it so you you get exposed to all this new stuff i imagine you're really excited you graduate from culinary school which not many of your peers no. did what what was your next step where'd you go next at that point uh i graduated culinary school um and both of my sisters lived in omaha at the time i had an older sister younger sister they both went to creighton um and so i kind of wanted to be closer to them closer to home you know, because my parents still lived in Chamberlain and stuff. But, you know, my sister had just gotten married. She had a couple, she had a kid on the way. So it's like kind of wanted to be closer to home to help out with that. And uh, she was kind of foodie too. My, my older sister, she cooks a lot. She's a very good cook. Um, she picked it up for my mom. But uh, so she's always was looking for that new thing too in Omaha. You know, she'd been here a while. You know, she loved to go out and eat, try new things. And at that point, you know, I told her I was moving here, and she's like, oh, well, this restaurant, Mertz is hiring, this one's hiring, this one's hiring. So I sent applications out, got a call back from Mertz. I believe I did a phone interview. Um, I was still at the golf club in Mankato, like, still working up there for school. And uh, they gave me a call back. I think it was Eileen Stamp. I talked with her, um, accepted the position or whatever, um, and... You know, I started researching V Mertz and the menu, and I think that Clayton had just been there for a year, year and a half maybe at that point. So wait, you you accepted before you researched the menu? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just trying to get a job, get in. Okay, get, okay. You know, um, but I didn't know half the terms on the menu, so it wouldn't have mattered <laughs> if I looked at it first or not. You know, it was like I was so young. I was like, I didn't know any of these terms. I didn't know if that was even an ingredient or a technique. It was kind of eye-opening on that point, too. So – 
is that exciting for you and that, hey, there's all this new stuff that I get to try? Or is that super intimidating? Like, oh my gosh, oh, what first, did I just get myself into? At first, it was extremely intimidating. I didn't have, you know, tools. I, you know, I think I just had my culinary school knife, you know, like just walking in blind. I had no idea, you know. And that was like learning how a fine dining operation works. To me, I'd never done any of that stuff, you know, glazing vegetables in a pan, you know, like sous vide cooking. Never heard of that before, you know. It's just like, <laughs> but I accepted that challenge because I wanted to, I wanted to know about it, and I spent enough time in school and made that career choice. It's like, well, I either buck up and learn this and figure it out, or what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah, there's times when my first couple weeks or a month there, I'd look down at the dishwasher and be like, God, I wish I was almost washing dishes now, <laughs> not getting you know yelled at and burning myself and overcooking stuff. It's like, just spinning circles, you know? So, I mean, obviously you survived, you thrived and came out the other side uh, a better cook because of it. What, what advice would you give to someone like who was stepping into your shoes like you, like you did in that role where they're coming in totally green, they have a ton to learn, they don't really know what they're doing. Like, what advice would you give to them? Uh, keep your eyes open, your ears open, keep your head on a swivel. And just pay attention, you know, what's going on around you. You know, that's the other thing is situational awareness. Just make sure, because you can learn stuff from the guy that's not even on your station. If you're, you know, paying attention and you see these operations and yeah, just keep your eyes open, stay positive. It's going to suck for a little bit, but <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, you, I mean, you go from, from working at a country club to working at V Mertz, which is, you know, one of Omaha's most well-known fine dining restaurants, I yeah. would say. At what point did you start to feel comfortable there where it wasn't like you're coming in every day and looking at the dishwasher and envying <laughs> their job, but you're like, okay, these things that I went to and I got excited about in culinary school, now I'm actually getting to do those and I understand it. Like you weren't you didn't feel like you were just keeping your head above water, but you were swimming. Yeah, it's like when you have your first successful service on a station and you don't need, you know, backup or help, you know, that's kind of when it clicks. You're like, oh, I, I can do this. You know what I mean? It's like, I can do this. It's not that hard. I mean, it is hard, but it's when you have your first one and you feel good after service and, like, you know, you go out and, you know, have, have your shift beer or whatever, and it's like, ah, that beer tastes even better because I had a good service tonight. You know, it's like all those things. That's kind of when I hit it, you know, when you felt successful at what you did that night, you know. But then the best part is I got to do it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So then only get better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, analyze how your service went. Points that you, you know, points in your service where you screwed up or slowed down or anything like that, then you'd I always just would think back, how could I make that more efficient? You know, even if I just put the oil bottle here, as opposed to here, that's one less step, you know, all those things, you know. And that, I think when, when I hit it was when I felt confident that I was starting to rearrange my station, you know, pans, putting things different places. You know, that's when it, you kind of take ownership of your station, I guess. It's kind of when you feel that. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple of different uh, V-Mert chefs on here. Jake Newton, who was formerly the executive chef, and Amanda Sheeler, who's the mm-hmm. executive chef there now. And they've both stressed the importance of – not just viewing cooks as, you know, kind of employees or cogs in the machine, but really sourcing opinions from them and allowing them to create dishes or make suggestions on certain dishes, um, maybe even make adjustments. I, I don't know if that was going on during your time there, but did, did you experience that at all? Or were you mostly just executing someone else's vision? 
Um, no, Clayton was pretty open with that. He wanted, you know, everyone to have a part of it, you know, because when I first started there, I think John Seymour was there, and then AJ Swanda came on shortly after, and we were all working there. Clayton had his sous chef there, Greg Barr, a uh, hardworking guy from Chicago, learned a lot from him by just watching him, you know, just the way he moves in the kitchen, interacts with other people. But, yeah, I think it's really important to, like, let your cooks feel ownership of what we're all doing because it's everyone's working on this menu, you know, it's not just one person's thing, you know, cause I could be, it could be my menu, but if the kids can't execute it or don't feel ownership, they're not going to, they're not going to like doing it, you know? So I feel like keeping everyone involved like that, it's good. Um, you know, we'd have input with a couple dishes, you know, when we were there, I think, yeah, we had a couple dishes on there. But, uh, like I said, most of that, at that point in my career, most of that stuff was so far over my head, you know, I couldn't, look at a couple ingredients and be like, oh, this would be a dish. You know, you'd have your texture, your, you know, your sweet and your sour and your, you know, your savory components. I'd, I'd be spinning. I was like, I don't know what to do with this blueberry and this duck breast, you know, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. but then when you figure out and, you know, Clayton was a good teacher and uh, he was good at um, utilizing a lot of product in different ways. You know, I don't know if he picked that up at true or if that's just his style. Uh, I kind of adapted that style to where, you know, you do a nice, nice veg cut and then you puree the vegetables, scraps, and use that as garnish and, you know, all those things. But, uh, yeah, it, it's very important that your staff feels more than just as an employee, that they, they have a part of the menu, the restaurant, and the whole operation. Because, like I say, they're important all the way up from the dishwashers, cleaning Brussels sprouts for you to, you know, the maitre d' that's seating everyone in the face of the restaurant. You know, I think everyone should feel... Like they have ownership of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Whether this was at V Mertz or at one of your future stops, do you remember the first time like you created a dish and it was yours and it went on the menu? Yeah, I mean, I think we had a couple. I might have had a couple specials, but I don't think it was until I actually saw my name on a menu, like when I became executive chef at V Mertz. Um, I think that was when I finally felt like ownership. Like, oh, my name is on this. So like all this, you know, has to be done right, done perfect, because that's my name out there, you know. And as a young chef, it's like, and looking at the competition in Omaha at the time, too, because I knew Omaha was kind of coming up. The more I got into the the hospitality circle in Omaha, like, you could see that there's a lot of uh, talent out there, and it's not going to be easy to try and, you know, get up and, you know, run your own kitchen or even eventually own your own own restaurant and stand up to these guys, you know. And a little intimidating as a kid from South Dakota, but just do it, you know. You figured it out. Just cook. <laughs> uh, what age did you become executive chef of V-Mertz? Uh, it was probably two two years after I started there. I think I was 26, 24, 26, somewhere in there. That, that is very impressive. Yeah. How long did you stay in that role, and then, and then what was your next move? So I stayed exec there. Well, after, after Clayton left, um, Kyle Anderson took over his – uh, chef de cuisine or executive chef and that's how I got to meet him uh good cook uh good guy to work with learned a lot a lot from him um so I was I was his sous chef for about a year and then when Kyle took an opportunity to move to San Francisco and open up his own restaurant uh that's when they offered me the exec position and I think I did that for about a year and a half I think almost close to two years in that position and then that was uh right before the gray plume was opening and um, <clears throat> Eileen had sold V Mertz to David Hayes, and I was at that point where I was kind of felt like I was in over my shoot in over my head there because I was still really young and still didn't you know it took me 
on my days off, like hours to write two or three dishes. I'd have books open, all this stuff, you know, trying to like just put it together. Um, so I kind of felt like I needed more guidance at that point. So that's when I heard, you know, Clayton was an open gray plume. I needed an out because I wasn't, I didn't have a mentor there. I guess I was the top tier and, you know, felt like I, like I said, needed some more guidance in my career. And, uh, yeah, I called Clayton and yeah, from there started there, uh, yeah, shortly after they opened, I think it was maybe two weeks, three weeks after they opened, I started there. That line of thinking that you just presented is something that I've actually heard is fairly common in the kitchen, that sometimes to take a, ne- a step forward and take that next step in your career, you have to take a step back and do some more learning first. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, uh, same thing at this point. That's why I'm so grateful to be at Avali and working with Dario because I had ran kitchens for the past, you know, six years. I think it was six, about six years at Great Plume. You know, learned a lot from Clayton. Then I was on top. He was doing, you know, other stuff outside the restaurant to promote the business. But then, you know, you go to like four years and you're, you've been teaching for four years, you know. So it was uh, same thing. It was just like, you know, you feel like you still don't know everything there is and, uh, you know, yeah, you need more guidance at that point too, you know. I think maybe maybe at Ovali is where I'll figure out my cooking style, you know. I don't know. Right. Now, uh, going back to the Grey Plume, unfortunately it's it's closed now. It was yeah. a casualty of the pandemic. But in its heyday, it was one of the most respected and well-known restaurants and not even just in Omaha. What, in your mind, what was it that made that place special? Uh, I think first – you know, is the, you know, the Green Restaurant Association, like, uh, everything we did to be sustainable and use, you know, 100% of the animal, you know, 100% of the vegetables, make sure we're composting, we're getting from local farmers, we're not using all these chemicals, things like that, you know, I think helped a lot uh, with their opening. But I think, I think the town was just, like Omaha, was just super excited at that point. You know, boiler room was open, you know, they were doing great things. And then to have another, you know, chef do start doing his thing, I think people were just hungry at that point, you know. Um, but they did, uh, the Great Plume did have a sense of style that I don't think Omaha had yet at that point, you know. I don't I don't know if I'm incorrect saying that. Or, no, I, I would agree with that 100%. You know, it was you know, snazzy new place, you know what I mean. And, you know, we, we did our, like I said, we did our best and uh, I'm – I'm extremely proud with what I've done there and what, what Clayton and I did there, you know. Well, I think you, you bring up a good point in that that was still kind of a new, you know, style of dining to Omaha. You yeah, know. tasting menus. Exactly. Courses, amuse-bouche, you know, takeaways. So when, you know. when diners came in, you know, I'm sure, you know, there were people who were like, hey, I heard about this great bloom. This is the hot new place or whatever. When they come in, did you see the sense of like, not and I guess you're back in the kitchen, so maybe you're not interacting. But like, did you get a sense that like diners were trying to figure out exactly what was going on, and they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into? Yeah, sometimes uh, you know they don't realize they're going to be there for two hours having eight course <laughs> dinner. Or uh, yeah, you could see that. But our staff, you know, front of the house staff was very good at that point in, in right. guiding the diner through our experience. I guess to say. Now, Clayton Chapman is one of the most decorated chefs in Omaha's history. I believe he has more James Beard Award nominations than any Omaha chef. What was it like to learn under him and be mentored by him? It was good. I mean, he was a good teacher. Um, 
you know, he, he brought, like I say, that style from Chicago that people hadn't seen, you know, or done. He had uh, his business partner, uh, Chef Howe, was a, I think he met him at culinary school in Chicago, um, but he had been around the block. He's eaten everywhere, you know, this guy knew his stuff too. And, you know, they brought this style here that, uh, I don't know, it's, I guess it's just, just so different. Um, but Clayton took his time to, like, make sure you understood what you're doing or how we're doing this or, you know, he never got, you know, he'd never get like angry, yell, throw, throw stuff. You know, that wasn't his style. And I kind of rubbed off on me, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty easy guy to work with and, you know, we'll make sure we get it done. Right. You know, all that yelling and throwing stuff ain't going to get anything done. You mm-hmm. know? How important is it to understand the how behind what you're cooking and not just, you know, being on the line and executing a dish, but actually understanding the thought behind the dish, why certain flavors pair together, uh, you know, why is it plated this way? Like, how, how important is just that understanding of the dish overall and not just focusing on execution, execution, execution? I mean, every, all those things have a reason, you know, like, <clears throat> like say, the presentation on the plate, that's, there's a reason why you put the, the protein facing forward so the guests can see it, you know, so it shows face temp or, like, when we would build amuse-bouches on spoons, uh, you know, you'd have your creamier component towards the front of the spoon because that's the first thing that's going to hit your palate. And then you'd have your, you know, uh, more tart or, you know, bitter or your, your textural things towards the back. So it, you know, kind of completes the whole uh, bite, you know, with sweet, sour, savory, creamy, texture, crunch, you know, all that. Um, so I think it's important that, you know, your cooks or you understand that, like how we do it or why we do it is that's the reason. You know, so it hits your palate this way, or so the guest sees that, you know, because that's the main focus was, would be that steak or whatever. You know, make sure you have the proteins like that. Uh, the way you plate it, you know, you have to transfer it to your servers. Like, this would be, like, your 6 o'clock on the plate. The way I plate it is how you present it to the guest, you know. It's, it's just a lot of stuff, you know. It's, it's interesting, though. This is the kind of things that I wish, and I don't even know how we would do this, but I wish that there was some kind of education that, us as diners could go through to understand all of the, just the the things that we think are minuscule details yeah. about a plate and there's just like hundreds of these little touch points yeah. and like like resting your steak you know when people it, are yeah. like I don't want a bloody steak you know I want a mid rare no blood we'd get that a lot you know medium no blood well you know you're going to wait 20 minutes because we're going to rest that steak for 10 and that's how you get a perfect temp with no bleed out on the plate. You know, when people are like, oh, I don't want bloody steaks. It's like, well, you just you take that <laughs> 10 minutes to just chill and then slice it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. See, I, I just, I think that we would just have a much healthier diner restaurant relationship and there'd mm-hmm. be less, just less complaining. Yeah. If we all understood that. Yeah. And I'm sure that resonates with you to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I still take, you know, those complaints as input. Though. Yeah, like how to get better from it. You know, oh, that guest didn't like it. That was just one person, but I'd like to find out why. Maybe it wasn't their flavor, there wasn't their thing they wanted, or they just didn't expect what they're going to get when you only list like dayboat scallop, you know, grapefruit fennel and arugula. You know, they don't know that they're going to get like fennel marmalade, fresh fennel salad, you know, all these, you know, different things. So, I mean, but that comes to the server too, explaining everything at the table. Mm-hmm. It's a whole nother round of front of the house stuff too. How long did you stay at Gray Plume, and where did you go next? So I was at the Plume for five and a half years, from when they opened up until, I think it was 2016. Uh, and then after that, that was when I heard that uh, Kyle Anderson was opening Baylor Rose, and I'd worked with him at 
uh, V Mertz, you know, well, you know, I can still learn from this guy too. You know, he was just in uh, San Francisco with his wife. They just had a kid. He had a sandwich shop out there, I believe. I'm not sure exactly the definitions of his restaurant out there. Uh, but it was successful enough that he was out there for five years. You know, so I was like, well, let's see what he wants to do here in Omaha. And I knew he had a similar cooking style, and I figured the restaurant would be the same way, and it was. It was uh, so that's where I went next after that. I reached out to him and took a sous chef position under him. And what was what was different about working there than what you'd experience at V Mertz and the Gray Plume? Um, well, I see. So at the Gray Plume, I mean, Clayton was the owner, chef owner, um, and here. Uh, Kyle is chef owner with his wife. They both own it. Um, so the difference would be a little bit, uh, trying to word it, um, a more laid back, I guess, uh, dining experience there. You know, Grey Plume was, which is good. But I mean, you know, it's like linen's tables, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, it was more build your own menu there type of thing. He had like different small plates, different price points to where you, like a table of six could order 12 different things and get to taste, you know, a wide variety of the menu. Uh, we had that option at the Plume too, and a lot of diners would make their own three or four course menus, you know. Uh, when we offered the eight course tasting, they, they got to taste everything at that point as well. But yeah, maybe a little more laid back service, you know, type of thing. But that was welcomed, you know. It was a hard five years at the Plume for sure, you know, holding that high standard. Um, so it was almost a little, it was good for me to get get out of that high pace, or that pace, you know what I mean, and mm-hmm. kind of slow it down a little bit, mm-hmm. and, you know. Uh, I think the plume was only closed one day a week, and uh, it was important for me when I made that switch that I had time to myself. Like, that was when I started to realize I need to take time for myself. I took the past five years and put it into this restaurant. And, uh, you know, so I made some, requests at that point it's like i want two days off in a row you know and they have to be one of them has to be this day so i can spend time with my fiance you know and that's when i started taking like i said a step back and looking at myself you know not to get burnt out because it's a tough career so you got to take a step back and take care of yourself too it's very important and that's kind of that step when i broke off of it uh when i left the plume i started to realize i i really needed to like look out for myself at this point he gave me a place to do that and gave me the two days off I needed, and we rocked it out there for about a year and a half. That, what you just said there about, you know, making sure you're taking care of yourself, that's something that I feel like I've heard more and more during the pandemic is that it forced a lot of chefs and a lot of cooks, a lot of restaurant workers to kind of take a step back because a lot of restaurants weren't open seven days a week anymore. It was only a couple days, so they were, mm-hmm. they were just – they were forced – to spend more time on themselves or forced to not be at work and spend time with their family. And it kind of helped them reevaluate things and be like, okay, I need to have better work-life balance. Mm -hmm. What allowed you to make that realization earlier before the pandemic while you were still kind of in it? Because I feel like it's the restaurant industry is just so day to day, so Mm -hmm. hard hitting. Like it's hard to step back and have that realization. How did you come to that? Uh, I think it was just I went too hard too long, you know what I mean? Uh, and you start to, you know, when you, like, sick, take a step back and look at yourself, it's like, I, you know, I, I lost weight, you know, I'm not eating right, I know that for sure, I'm not eating correctly, you know. Uh, a lot of people think just because you work in a restaurant that you, you eat all the time, you eat all the food. It's like, <laughs> no, you taste 100 bites everything a night, you know, and that's not a balanced diet. Uh-uh. And then, you know, as you've, I'd go home and, 
instead of eating, I'd have a beer or two and then just go to bed and, you know, keep doing that cycle over and over for five, six, seven years. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I got tired and just realized I need time for myself here. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm getting older, you know, I'm missing out on life, you know, because I did dedicate everything to the restaurants I worked at. Like that was a, a number one most important thing is that take care of your staff, dinner service goes properly and guests are happy. And I like lived that mantra for a while and it was got hard, you know, to where I was not being fair to myself type of thing, but giving it all to the restaurant and to the guests, you know? So yeah, I kind of realized that and it's like, yeah, got to take time for yourself, man, Mm -hmm. before you run out of time, Mm -hmm. you know? But uh, yeah, with the pandemic, that when I got furloughed from the hotel, that was the longest I had ever had consecutive time off since I started working. Like I'd have an extended weekend here, take a week off there, you know, whatever. You know, I think the longest maybe I might have had two weeks off at one point when I was at the Mertz, but I was like not in a management position at that point. And then, yeah, you know, you realize how long it's been after you, you that you haven't had that much time off to yourself. It's like, geez, man, it's crazy, you know. So I think I was almost you know, not working for like four months. I'd never done that in my life. It's insane to me. <laughs> it was. What, what was that time like? For, I mean, was it like, w- was it stressful because you're so used to the day-to-day grind and all of a sudden that wasn't there? Or was it kind of freeing and relaxing because it was like, oh, there's a there's a different pace to life yeah. that I haven't really experienced before. It was freeing and relaxing with that stressful uh, pandemic hanging over your head. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a little like, bit of stress from that. Am I going to get COVID and not be able to smell or taste food forever? You know, that was a big one for me. I was like, we closed up pretty hard with that stuff because I heard too many stories of people losing their sense of smell or not getting their you know, taste back properly, and like that was a no go for me. You know, I was like, I'm. So we took it pretty serious. We didn't really see many people. We'd only go to you know we didn't you know all the things you're supposed to do. Uh, but like with that much time off, yeah, I did find out. It's like God. I've, forgot how much I loved fishing, you know, and I, I almost took like six weeks in a row. I was fishing almost every other day here, there, wherever. It doesn't matter. I didn't even care if I caught fish or not. It's like, I'm, I'm outside in nature. It's beautiful out and I'm not at work right now, you know, but like it might've been five, six years since I'd gone fishing before that, mm-hmm. you know, and you realize how much you like it and missed it. How important was it to kind of have that reset moment? Like, you know, you're back in a kitchen now, you're doing great work at Avalie, but you got some time to to just get away from it all. How important was that for you? That was very important. It was almost like a second, you know, reset, like you said, because um, it, it definitely changed my outlook on food, plating, all those things, you know. You know, extravagant isn't always better. If it doesn't need to be on the plate, don't put it on the plate type of thing. You start thinking of those things. And then I even took more time, you know, because we weren't doing anything, <laughs> But, you know, I finally got my kitchen at my house to where I enjoyed cooking there. Because before, you know, you'd get off on the weekend and you got to do dishes first and, you know, cutting words or whatever, you know, stuff's all over the place. And I finally had time to, like, go in my kitchen and find my own workshop again type of thing. You know, bought a metro rack, organized all this stuff, got, like, a meat grinder, all these other things I would have never got because I never had time to do any of that. So I occupied my time making brats at home, making pastas at home, making start making bread every week, you know what I mean? Just, just to do it. And it was fun, honestly. And it made you realize again, why you love doing it, you know, growing some herbs out in the front. And every time you go out, it smells like rosemary, sage, and mint, you know, those types of things because you're going too fast before to even care about it. You're in and out the door in 
out to work and back home and drink a beer and go to bed. You know, so it was good to have that re- second reset, I guess, you know, and really clear your head. And it was funny because when the hotel called us back, you know, I was excited to go back to work, see everyone again. Um, and one thing that stuck out to me was when my food and beverage director, a great guy, Mark Butler, uh, awesome dude, uh, you know, we're serving food in to-go boxes. You know, there's only, you know, of the 350 employees they employed before that, only 55 came back because that's all they could do with the budget, whatever. Uh, but, you know, I got my butt kicked. I was working, you know, 5 a.m. in the morning doing breakfast, everything in to-go boxes. Uh, and then Mark came back, and he's like, you know, soon it'll it'll be back to normal here again, you know. And then I, like, I took a step back, and I thought, I was like, I don't know if I liked it when it was normal here. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, I don't know. And not, not you know, bad-mouthing anyone down there. It just wasn't my thing. I did, you know, two years at the, at the hotel, corporate style, and uh, needed to do it, you know, put your toes in the water, and it just wasn't for me. Gave you a chance to reevaluate. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, <coughs> I think it was, yeah, Jordan reached out to me from Avali and just asked what I was doing, if I'd be willing to come down and talk to Dario. And I went down there and talked to Dario. He showed me the kitchen. I accepted, like, a Friday, Saturday night on the grill shift. And uh, so I was working part-time there and then still going to the hotel because our hours were weird. And I just wanted to make sure, you know, stay afloat and – uh I was like, the first, second dinner service was like, I forgot what it was like to do that. You know, just focus on one thing and do that right and do it correctly. You know, working at grill station as opposed to running the whole line at the hotel with, you know, 600 burgers being ordered and all that stuff and catering going out this way and something going out that way. It was like, it was nice to just recenter yourself at that point too. Okay, so we've made a couple references to the hotel, and I want to go back to that point in your career real quick. I, I got us off track a little bit by bringing up the pandemic, but you uh, you worked at Society 1854, which is inside of the um, the Marriott the, the, the Marriott downtown in, in the in the capital district. How did that opportunity come about? And and you've made some references to how it was different from what you had previously experienced. How was it different? Uh, the volume, the, uh, the volume we were doing for sure was very different. You know, there's one rush and I think Chris first could attest to this. We were doing, I think $12,000 in food and beverage sales every 15 minutes for three hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and that was like probably a Creighton, Creighton basketball game night or it could have been a country concert, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy, you know, cause they just fill it up down there, you know, special events at other places where you're doing you know, 20 people, you know, eight courses, perfect plates, you know, have the time to like make sure each plate's perfect. There, it's just like, God, I hope that they got their burger <laughs> at that rate, you know. Yeah, it was, it was, it was different pace, different everything for me, you know. Instead, I couldn't just call a purveyor and get, you know, sweet corn. I had to go through my, you know, the, the purchasing and receiving guy and get it okayed by my food and beverage director and the executive sous chef and so many hoops to go through just to get a case of sweet corn. Annoying, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's the job, and that's what it is there, and I respect it. It's a hard job, but it just wasn't for me. It sounds like, and again, you know, we're not saying anything bad about that restaurant specifically no. or other hotel, but it just sounds a lot more like buttoned up, a lot more corporate. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, yeah, you go to budget meetings and things like that. I've never been to a budget meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you go to these meetings and listen to all these people talk, and you're like, I don't even know what these guys are talking about. You know, uh-huh. 
But I looked at that too before the pandemic. I looked at that as I I did want to grow in that. You know, I was working on the numbers with my executive sous chef, and he, you know, he was a very good teacher, Dan Zooks, and he was, you know, like I said, he's he ta- he's a good teacher, takes a lot of people under his wing, and wants them to learn and learn right. You know, which I respected the hell out of that when you know I kind of got to know him better, and uh, yeah, it just sucked the way it turned out with the pandemic and all that. Who knows? It could have been if I would have gave it longer, it might have been a thing. Here we are. So it sounds like, you know, that wasn't your favorite stop in your career. But what did you take away from that job now where as you look back, you say, I learned this at that job that has made me a better chef today? Um, I mean, I think it's just the whole overtell the whole overview of the hotel operation was like really eye opening for me there. Uh, You know, the general manager, he's dealing with housekeepers, culinary, you know, valet, front desk, and then making sure all the guests are happy too, and along with keeping the budgets and numbers and all those things in order. Uh, it's a bigger job than you'd think, you know, when you, you're general manager of a hotel. It's like, <laughs> you know, but then I hadn't, I hadn't done banquet service in years, probably since I was in high school, you know, and then seeing that banquet operation again, like running at full speed, how they do – you know, a party for 200 here, a wedding for 300 here, you know, appetizers for 50 people over here, and all, all coming out of one kitchen directed by one dude with his staff. It was, again, it was like, God damn, you know, <laughs> eye-opening, you know, to see that operation again. You know, you'd go down in the basement, and there'd be 20 hot boxes lining the whole wall. You know, there'd be 35, 40 speed racks, you know, if they were not in use in the five different coolers that we had. I think I'm starting to sweat, like, just hearing you describe all this. (laughs) (laughs) But it is awesome to see that again and see these, like, guys operating at full capacity. And, like, that's what they do and they love, and it's awesome. You know, it just wasn't my gig. Mm -hmm. But it's, like, always that inside view. It's, like, I didn't know all this happened this way, you know, until you do it again. Mm -hmm. So you get on the grill at Dario's, and you said that that just, it was great to, like, get back in that environment. Mm -hmm. What was it, like? Take, take me back to that moment when those first couple of times you're working on the grill, like what was it that made you feel like, Oh, th- this feels familiar. This is what I, this, this is more my speed. Actually setting up your station with your tools and spoons and mise en place in order. I think it was also when I cooked the first bistecca and, uh, you know, you, when you go to slice and you nail the temperature, it's like, you know what I mean? Cause Dario's sitting there watching you too. You know? <laughs> but you know, when I think it was probably when I've nailed that first bistecca there, and knowing that's probably the most expensive item on the menu, it's like, yes, back at it again, you know. That was, I think that was the part that got me, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to go back a little bit to when you're creating tasting menus because this is just like the, the, the process of it just fascinates me, just yeah. how this entirely new menu is just created, but it's not – it's not just five or six dishes thrown together. It's it's a progression. Each mm-hmm. dish plays into the next. These are not separate things. They're meant to start a diner going in one direction and continue to lead them in a certain way, in a way that they're not really even understanding mm-hmm. that it's happening. Like it's it's just such a fascinating process to me. Can you just real open ended question, but just like take me through the process. Like if you're creating a tasting menu, where do you even start? Uh Start with the amuse-bouche, <laughs> you know. Um, like if I'm sitting down thinking about trying to create one, obviously the first thing I look at is the progression, like you said. 
I, I like personally, I like to go light to heavy, you know, finish on something nice and rich and then finish with, well, finish with a nice dessert, a light dessert, you know, finish my entrees. I like to finish heavy, say steak or braise or something at the end of your meal. As long as you have that refreshing dessert to like wash the palate, you know, you know, you don't feel overloaded and full type of thing. But I try to hit all the, all the flavors that you have, you know, at your availability, you know. I always try to do something vegetarian, a soup, something seafood, you know, some sort of cold salad, depending on the time of the year. And then you go into like, you know, poultry or, you know, I love duck. You know, I, I would finish a dinner on, on a duck breast, you know, type of thing. You know, a lot of people finish with beef, but you just try and hit all the, all the tastes, all the textures, all everything, you know, you try and do it all in one progression and at first, it was hard, like I said, looking at a couple ingredients. You're like, I don't know. But after you do it long enough, and honestly, I we would take things off our own menu, and that's how it, the a la carte menu, and that's how I'd kind of de- develop them, would be, you know, smaller courses or items from those things or mix and match a couple things. Sometimes you just look in the cooler and I'll cut that up real quick and do that, you know. Um, yeah, it's, that's a tough question, honestly, when you think about it, uh, how, how you build that, but... Like I say, you just want them to experience everything that you have available to serve them, mm-hmm. you know, in an intelligent manner. Mm-hmm. You know, try not to repeat or repeat, be, you know, clever with it. Like sometimes you'd, I'd finish with like a component on an entree from the Amuse Bouche. Say there's like beets on the Amuse with goat cheese and walnuts, whatever, making it up. And, uh, you know, maybe finish, bring it all back around full circle. Oh, we got roasted beets with whatever on your entree, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Kind of remember, makes you remember what you started with. Cause you have so many courses in between. Then you, f- you forget you had that, you know, Oh, I'm having beats again. Oh, I had that at the beginning of the dinner. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. Yeah. That, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, see, th- this is exactly why I asked that question because I like my, my knowledge of tasting menus has grown a lot, but I wouldn't have even, I I've never realized before the connection between the beginning and the end of the meal, but mm-hmm. I still remember my, the first tasting menu I did at Au Courant. I, I mean, every dish came out, and I was just like, "Oh, this is good. This is good." This, but I had I didn't understand what the restaurant was actually doing, and that yeah, we're starting with an amuse bouche, and then we're moving, you know, into like a, you know, a, a cold dish or a raw preparation, mm-hmm. and then a small pasta, and then a fish, and then a steak, and then yeah, finish it off with dessert. Like that is all elaborately planned. That's not that it's not just like thrown up on a wall and it's like okay mm-hmm. th- this is what we're doing this week it is it's a very elaborate like well thought out process and i just yeah i'm like in said, i'm in awe of people who can put it together something cold something hot keep them tricking you know keep trick keep them guessing i guess is what you'd say is like keep them guessing what they're going to get unless they have the menu in front of them but uh another thing that i like to do too is like throw the old hot cold add them too on one dish you know serve something with a scoop of sorbet next to a hot piece of scallop or you know something like that it's always always interesting Mm -hmm. what qualities do you believe make a great chef um that's a tough one too but i would have to say it'd be work ethic passion and drive it'd have to be you know you have to have a strong work ethic and you have to love what you do and you have to want to do it again the next day and the next day and the next day you know is that something that can be developed or is that something that you're kind of born with? Like, is it just an innate thing? Some people are born with it and they, they wouldn't even, they'd think it was silly if, you know, they didn't do this, this or this, cause that's just what they are. But, uh, with the, 
I think with the right teacher, the right goals, set small goals, I think you can get anyone to that point, you know, to have that, you know, but you got to keep them excited, mm-hmm. keep them, you know, engaged in what's going on type of thing. And like I said, giving them, giving them some ownership of stuff always helps kids, you know, younger kids and cooks. You're like, oh, I, you know, I, I've rolled these pastas, you know, or whatever, you know, that always helps kids, you know, feel like the ownership they have on a dish like we talked before. Um, so yeah, I think with all those things, you can definitely instill that into somebody, but it comes from your teacher, your leader, you know, and everyone else around you, you know, you're not going to be the only one pushing that hard. If the other three guys are over there on their phone, flipping through Instagram, you know, whatever, it's like, you just got to surround yourself with those people. Mm -hmm. I think just from this conversation, it seems like you're someone who really looks at the long view of your career and you've taken some very smart calculated steps to like we talked about to to take a step back at one point to to try out different experiences to evaluate work-life balance so as you kind of look forward in your career and I know that you're very happy at at uh Avalee, but like as you look forward in your career what what are some of your goals and aspirations as you continue down this path uh I think uh, obviously I like, I would love to, you know, own my own restaurant at some point, but at this point in my life, I don't know what style I want to do, you know, what I want to focus on, you know, you know, I could say I'm kind of unfocused on that at this point. Um, but that'd be my main goal is to eventually own a restaurant. Um, but then, you know, closer goals, you know, one year, two year, whatever goals, um, is obviously be able to execute Avali's menu and what they've been doing so well for eight years, you know, flawlessly at that point, you know, and then I can move on to another goal mm-hmm. after that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Feeling hundred percent comfortable that I know exactly what's supposed to be on these plates, how it's supposed to look, taste everything, execute all the prep. You know, those are kind of small term goals to get to that point. But yeah, eventually I want to own my own restaurant. My uh, fiance, she's a bartender downtown, uh, tiny house bar. Oh yeah. Um, so she has, that front of house experience that I don't like she can manage the bar, run the bar, front of the house thing. So we got the two, you know, front of the house, back of the house in the same house, but you know, we got to find that place that we can both work together at, uh-huh. which, you know, working with your significant other can be stressful. I don't know, but she's kind of on the same page too. Is like eventually our long, long game is that we own a restaurant and a bar. Well, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to eat there. Someday. Yeah. It'd be fun. So, being a cook, and even when you move into the role of executive chef or chef de cuisine or whatever Dario wants to call yeah, it, the position you're at right now. That's okay with me. I don't care. That, that's very different from owning a restaurant. Like owning a restaurant, you take on all kinds of different responsibilities. And, you know, we kind of get into more of the business side like you talked about at the mm-hmm. hotel. Do you, do you like pick Dario's brain about stuff like that? I, I mean, are you asking him questions? Are you trying to feel him out and be like, you know, what, what do I need to know that oh, yeah. I, I'm not experiencing right now? Yeah. All the time. I always, you know, cause I respect him so much. Cause he, I mean, God, he owns, you know, operated Dario's brasserie with, with his wife, Amy for 18 years. And I've always felt that hitting that five year point for a new restaurant is like a milestone. Right. You know, but now he has two restaurants in the area. That's been five plus. I mean, obviously is what eight, eight or nine years at this point. Um, yeah, I, I would, Use him as a good uh, form of research, resource, a good resource for uh, that that information stuff like that. Yeah, I'm always picking his brain on that stuff, and if not, he doesn't even know he's telling me how he did it. You know what I mean? Like, so that's why I always say keep your ears open because you know he could be explaining something that 
he did that he found was successful 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. All right, John, you have been a fantastic guest. I I have two more questions before I get you out of here. These are things that I'd like to ask just about everybody in the industry. I think they're, they're interesting just for me. And I think they're good for diners to know. Um, So the first one, what is one thing that you think most diners don't understand about the restaurant industry that you wish they did understand? That's a, that's a big one. Um, that we're, that we're people too. We go home every day, you know, and deal with a hundred of you, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, not no, in a negative no. way, but it's like, you know, we're people too. And like, God bless the servers and the front of the house staff. Cause I could not do that. Like deal with those, deal with guests in that way and you know, all their needs and things like that. And I get it. You know, they, our guests might've just gotten off work, had a bad day you know, whatever, but like we're, we're people too. And, and we work hard, really hard at what we do. And, and we wouldn't do it if we didn't have a passion for it. And, you know, we appreciate the diners that get that a lot, hundred percent. Cause you can tell when you get those diners, you know, just in the way they talk or interact with your server, or even when you get an order, when you see the ticket and you're like, that guy knows what he's doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> this table's doing it upright, you know, a couple courses, bistec on there, whatever. They added pork belly to the carbonara. They added you know, put end, any addition on anything they wanted. It's like, these guys know what they're doing. Then you get, like, a two-top that orders, you know, two of the same thing. And you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to try anything different? Experience the menu. Yeah, yeah you're you here. Know. Try a couple different yeah. things. And so that's, like, one thing, too. Is like, you know, I get everyone's budget, but, like, at least try a couple different things, you know. Uh-huh. You, you made that journey all the way out. You know, see what else we can do, you know. And everyone in Omaha wants to eat between 6.30 and 7.45, <laughs> almost every night it's like we do take seats at five and we take seats after eight you know because you always get that bottleneck i don't think any restaurant will speak for that you always get the bottleneck at 7 15 7 30 you know come out and eat a little earlier you might get better service you know they might you know our servers will be more attentive to you because they don't have four other tables you know that's so, just me though that, that's a good pro <laughs> tip for people and why wait longer for dinner like usually if i if i know i'm eating out that's like the highlight of my day yeah so why push it back farther let's just get to that earlier and yeah. enjoy it sooner yeah exactly you know but i get it people you got to get home from work it changed yeah, yeah, yeah. you know there's it's all that but yeah just i wish we could spread it out a little more and everyone <laughs> would just get better service and be less stressful for sure fair enough there's a pro tip for the listeners uh now i'll get you out of here john on a more positive question what is your favorite part about being in the restaurant industry uh Favorite part, I think we talked about it before, but it's uh, similar to music for me. I like a lot of music uh, that you're going to learn here or do, find something out new every day that you didn't know. And who you learn that from, you're never going to know who that w- could be either. It could be, the, like I said, the dishwasher next to you. It could be the Comey you just hired. could be anything. A purveyor that comes through. You know, you could learn something every day, and that should be a goal, I think, for everyone, too, in the industry is make sure you learn something every day. If you're feeling stagnant, learn something. Open a book. Try a new technique. Do something, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful advice for anyone in any walk of life, not just restaurants. Just constantly be on the search for more knowledge, more learning. And that's what I love about it is you're going to learn something new every day if you keep your eyes open, Mm -hmm. you know. Beautiful. Wonderfully said. That's a good takeaway point to leave people with. John, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This was seriously a lot of fun and a true pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.